yeah, so I'm Rath Nicholson, I'm, the, um, I'm chairing this evening um, and I'm delighted to say that we've got Ben Duncan James here um, who's talking about the geographies and finances of prize fighting in Britain. Um, and Ben is a PhD student at De Montford University. Um, I was looking at his uh, profile on the DMU website earlier and it said that he's interested in violent recreational pastimes. Or the, the history's off though, we should, yeah, <laughs> we should make clear. Um, so, and this um, is, forms part of his, his doctoral work, uh, which is kind of looking at the changing um, sort of social um, and political context um, around attempts to control prize fighting. I think I've represented that correctly. Um, so, without further ado, um, I'll pass over to Ben um, just to say that we will have time for questions at the end. Um, so, for those of you in the Zoom room, uh, please um, hold off on your questions um, and then we'll come to you. At the end, um, you can you can type them in the chat as you go through if you want to. Otherwise, um, we'll just do hands up at the end. But over to you, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ralph. And also thanks to Jeff and the SH for an invitation and what not get asked back after <laughs> after this. Um, and thanks to the IHR for hosting these events. And also thanks to my supervisors, David and Matt Taylor, for their ongoing encouragement, guidance, and support in developing my project so far. And so for this paper, I wanted to present something that reflected where I am in terms of my research at the minute. And literally I've explored the geographies of prize fighting, both physical, which includes place and space and human. Um, oh, sorry, and place, place and space and human, which includes culture, identity and power. And more recently I've been looking at the commercial aspects as well going from a national level down to individual actors. What became clear in doing that, that these themes frequently intersect in fundamental ways. And, and what I'm hoping to show is the connections between those in this paper by focusing on some of the specific uh, elements. Go to the next slide, please. So the first section um, briefly discusses prize fighting's commercial context and then examines how the value of prizes related to place. And unsurprisingly, the the quantitative data confirm that the total value recorded in each year was broadly in sync with the number of fights that took place. But it also revealed that the money had remained in prize fighting in traditional heartland, which was London in the southeast of England, even after it had expanded into the Midlands and north of England in a period when it was supposedly in retreat across the country. And this section also examines the national and local structures that the prize ring exhibited. As Richard Holt has noted, pugilism was one of the first sports to have a written code of rules and a rudimentary kind of national championship, which is essential for gambling, organisation and publicity. And at a local level, the ring had a strong identity, often synergistic with public houses. And as Tony Collins and Ray Van Plew have stated, no, support, no sport had closer links to pubs and boxing, and publicans were among the forerunners of commercialism of sporting leisure in the Victorian city. In the second section, I'll look at earnings, opportunities and risk. And most fighters live like many of the working class on the edge of penury, and prize fighting was a tough and unforgiving profession. It embodied a competitiveness and financial jeopardy that accords with metaphors of sport and the capitalist binary of winners and losers. The anticipation and excitement of a hard-fought contest was heightened by an additional element of risk versus reward. But fighters also had the opportunity, opportunities and supplementary sources of income outside of the ring. 
and by engaging in these activities, they could avoid the dangers involved in fighting for a living. But inevitably, this was restricted to a small elite. However, the business of the ring was not solely about the fighters. It included the backers and other entrepreneurs, for whom this was a predominantly commercial arrangement. And the remaining patrons of the ring, who subscribed to purses, which had been the traditional source of fight funding. And there were industries that benefited from and supported the prize fighting as well. Not least of all, the national sporting press, which had grown its national readership during the 19th century and helped to create a mass market. And transport companies, that had closed distances between local networks and developed close financial ties with the prize ring. Next slide, please. Yeah. So by way of context, the underpinnings of the prize fighting's economic structures were in place long before the 19th century. Horse racing, to which it had attached itself in the 18th century, is a helpful comparison for understanding its trajectory. And Mike Huggins, who studied the evolution of horse racing across the long 18th century, has demonstrated that its financing rules and betting traditions had deep engagement with elite culture. But it also had cross-class appeal. And in an overlapping period, the 18th to mid-19th centuries, Adrian Harvey uncovered the extent and sophistication of commercial sport in England and contended that by the 1850s, a foundation for a nationally organised sporting culture already existed, only to be disrupted and set back by an amateur elite during the 1860s and 1870s. So Harvey's aggregated picture shows there was a general increase in events and expenditure across a range of sporting activities, at least from the mid-18th century. So in short, people across society were increasingly prepared to spend money on consuming sport as a leisure activity. By the mid-19th century, other popular pastimes such as cricket and football were or um, had or were in the process of transforming themselves commercially. But prize fighting already existed many of the characteristics of a commercial mass spectator sport. There was a consensus on how to play, a semi-regular calendar, large crowds, profit-seeking promoters, paid performers, state money contests and gambling. Although Dennis Brailsford argued the rules were loosely applied, an updated set of the London prize ring rules was issued in 1866 under the auspices of the London-based Pugilistic Benevolent Association. And, as, and Bell's life, the de facto voice of the ring, required any match for which acted as a stakeholder to comply with them. Inevitably, as Bell's life held an average of £15,000 of state money annually, and had a national weekly circulation of 30,000, so too did the rules. Yet for some sports, commercialisation, if defined as pursuing profit maximisation, was not the primary concern for the organisers. Instead, the playing of the game, winning fairly and securing, securing reliable venues were the driving forces, all of which were problematic for the fully professional and prescribed prize ring. Indeed, Bannock Fighting's commercial difficulties can be attributed to an inability to reconcile its competing eco internal economic forces. On one hand, the profit seekers and entrepreneurs who were branded as grubby corruptors of the noble art, and on the other, the anti-commercialism of some middle and upper class enthusiasts and amateur purists. The ideological difference between these two perspectives was clear. As one judge commented in 1866, it is laid down in the books that public, public boxing matches for the sake of gain are not lawful sports. 
and in 1867, Bell's life complemented the organisers of a fight that took place near London, which, as they say, went off with the greatest comfort and without a murmur, and affords another proof that sensation mills and high tariffs have gone out of date. The reporter was delighted at it not being forced down everyone's throat and conducted with great judgment and secrecy, and the patrons had agreed that the crowd should be a small one, despite the potential financial disadvantage to the fighters by limiting the number of spectators. For traditionalists, high-profile, well-publicised fights attracted unwanted attention and risk disruption, and they used finance to control these events and the fighters. The next slide, please. So the backdrop to this change was, where, was a change to where the fights took place. And as this slide shows, in the early part of the 19th century, the ring was heavily weighted towards London and the surrounding counties. But by the third quarter of the century, other places had emerged, in particular the Midlands and the Northwest. During the 18th and 19th centuries, both of those regions had undergone huge growth in population, urbanisation and industrialisation. And these changes provide the conditions for leisure to develop and expand. London no longer exerted the same overwhelming gravitational pull that it once had over prize fighting. There were opportunities for promoters and fighters in other regions and the Celtic nations. Previously, fighters had moved to London or provincial cities like Bristol and had a network to support them. But there, was now, there were now large population centres in the Midlands and the North that could create and sustain their own networks and individual communities were increasingly interconnected, from vast towns like Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool to remote, to remote rural villages. What was unchanged is the key role that competing for pay and or prizes played in British sporting culture. The most readily quantifiable financial element of the ring was the value of the prizes, usually cash, sorry, usually cash but also valuable items such as belts, trophies and watches made from precious metals. And while traces of the old forms of patronage persisted, with benefactors still willing to provide uh, fight purses, a new form of entrepreneurship had emerged. Fighters and their manager backers found alternative sources of funding, replacing the established master-servant relationship. As a former champion of England, William Bendigo Thompson declared, I am backed chiefly by Nottingham Weavers, by men who subscribe their pound or ten shillings each and who cannot afford to lose. This mirror change is taking place in society as people moved away from traditional bonds of the rural economy based on reciprocal relationships to urban wage-based employment. Next slide, please. As noted already, and as this slide shows, the annual sum of prize money, as recorded in the sporting newspapers predominantly, generally rose and fell in line with the number of fights. The early to mid-1860s were fairly stable, but there was a significant spike in 1863 due to several high-value contests, including the highest single-prize stage during this period, which was £2,000 for the Tom King and the John C. Hingham fight at Wadhurst in Surrey. Prominent fighters in championship fights like this naturally commanded higher sums, but those were exceptional and large prizes were not always seen as proper. As a prize-fighting chronicler, Henry Downs Miles remarked acidly, the immense stake, £2,000, so glaringly disproportionate to the merits of the battle. Next slide, please. As this slide shows, I'm sorry, there's a lot of numbers on this one, but 
Um, looking at averages gives an indication of the spread and change in the amounts offered for prizes. The mean is a useful measure, but it's skewed by high-value fights, as 1863 demonstrates. And the median shows the amount fighters could win remained fairly steady with the dip in 1865 until falling away from the late 1860s. However, the inclusion of multiple mode values provides a better estimate of the most often staked amounts. For example, in 1860, there's only a difference of one fight between the primary, secondary and tertiary mode values, which indicates this was a well-funded year. 1871 was the lowest on every measure by median pounds, and its mode is zero, as eight of the 22 fights recorded no values. However, those eight fights included four contests for silver cups and two for unvalued purses. The four cup contests were described as boxing competitions, open to all comers, and took place within a few days of each other at indoor venues in the London district. Two in Camden Town, which was at the time in Middlesex, the Jolly Butcher Public House, and two at Nat Langham's Cambrian Stores Tavern on the Charing Cross Road. The 1870s saw an increasing substitution of competition trophies for cash. Although championship belts had been awarded in high-status bare-knuckle fights, they were more common at gloved contests that could advertise freely in newspapers and avoid the pejorative label of a prize fight. Possession of these items have multiple effects. They legitimise the fighter's identity. For example, when Jem Mace tried to secure a rematch with the then-champion Tom King in 1863, he was presented with a 100-ounce chased gold cup by a landed gentleman, in fact, the Mace family's ancestral landlord. And he held a benefit in London to raise his profile, which he displayed all of the trophies, cups, belts and medals he'd been presented with during the course of his career. There's also the possibility of shamateurism, with these valuable items offered in lieu of a purse to be sold off or pawned if a fighter fell on hard times. In 1872, zero pounds was the second most frequent mode value, but there were two gloved fights for silver watches, two gloved fights for silver cups, and one lightweight championship belt with no prize value given, all of which took place in London. There was, however, one featherweight championship fight in Manchester for a belt with a value of 40 guineas. The fact that guineas were used to describe the value of that belt gave the contest an aristocratic overtone, with links back to notions of patronage that were characteristic of Regency-era prize fighting, and hints at horse racing, which continued to use guineas for prizes and as another vehicle for elite consumption. The fights for silver cups were a knockout tournament, at two weights and open to all comers, and under the 1867 Queensbury rules. The competition took place at different sporting pubs over three nights due to the magnitude of the programme on the first night and disturbances which caused two adjournments. A former fighter, Thomas McKelvey, owned one of the venues, the Spencer Arms in Soho, which was reportedly crowded with visitors. McKelvey had advertised his intention to finance a series of contests in the sporting press, but there were some conditions attached. The winner of the cup must contend for it if challenged, every month for six months, but if successful on each occasion, it became his property. The winner of each contest also received five pounds and half the receipts at the door would be given towards a monument to Jerry Noon, a popular and recently deceased Irish ex-pugilist nicknamed the unbought and undefeated. McKelvey's business model demonstrates that an impresario could put up a small cash prize to entice professional fighters 
and guarantee the continued participation of the best performers by offering them a chance of retaining a valuable prize, but with a minimal risk of losing his own investment. And the paying crowd may have been drawn in by the quality of the fighters on display and knowledge a portion of their entrance fee was contributing towards a worthy cause. Next slide, please. And the prize money data looked at by county, some notable geographical differences appear. As, this, as shown in this slide, the financial distribution in the early 60, 1860s was weighted towards the traditional centre of the ring, the southeast of England. Of the 13 years in which records are readily available, the counties with the highest value in the pounds in a single year most often ranked first was Surrey on three occasions and London twice. Although it's likely many fights that are taking place in London actually took place in an adjoining county. The second highest value by year is included and Surrey appears a total of six times from possible 26 occasions. Both London and Kent appear four times and Sussex appears twice. But even in the years when fewer fights were held in the cluster of counties adjacent to London, the individual prize values were often greater. In 1860, Berkshire recorded the highest total with £800, which was from just two fights of £400 each. Oxfordshire in 1862 for £400, and Sussex in 1863 for £2,000. Taking a regional view by grouping counties together, the counties in the south and east of England appeared most often and by some considerable margin, recording 18 of the 26 first and second highest value counties. In contrast, these data show that the total prizes in the counties of the Midlands, north of England and lower, even in the years when they recorded more fights. In 1861, Staffordshire and Warwickshire were ranked third and fourth respectively, but the prize value of Staffordshire was 23.2% that of Surrey and 25% that of Kent, and Warwickshire was 19.6% of Surrey and 21.1% of Kent. And it wasn't until 1865 that a northern county was ranked first. In that year, Yorkshire recorded £580 from a total of 25 fights, whereas Sussex recorded £400 from only one fight. If the northern counties are grouped together and the number of first and second ranked counties are totaled, they appeared five times, Yorkshire three and Lancashire twice. However, the Midlands counties conspicuous by their absence, particularly when the number of fights that took place in that region are considered. Although if the third and fourth ranks are included, the Midlands appeared eight times and the northern counties appeared a further six. The highest value, the highest value in a single year for a county in the Midlands was Staffordshire, 360 from 16 fights, and the highest value for a northern county was Yorkshire, with £785 from 29 fights. And despite the Celtic nations having a long-standing tradition of prize fighting and supplying fighters for the English prize ring, Irish, Scottish and Welsh counties appeared only once in the first rank. Welsh counties appear again once more, each in the third and fourth rank, and Scottish, Scottish once more in the fourth rank. And this frequency may have been an issue of reporting and the parochial nature of the English prize ring, which considered Celtic counties as adjunct locations or simply the financial and cultural dominance of the English prize ring, which pulled fighters in. So to summarise this section, the data show that while the location and number of fights were shifting towards the Midlands and the north of England, the big money was still concentrated where it had always been, in London and its hinterland. However, 
the concentration of finance in southern England was not necessarily a hindrance for increasingly mobile professional fighters. Thanks to the national press and good transport links, they could communicate and travel further, transcending the limitations of uh, distance and physical geography. The networks that supported a fighter in their home location were interlinked and facilitated their domestic economic migration to fight elsewhere in the country. Pre-steam power, this would have been neither easy nor practical, so the prize ring and its patrons had by necessity and circumstance been centred on London and the surrounding counties, and to a lesser extent places like Bristol had a long history of producing quality prize fighters. Improved links ensured to enabled multiple regional contexts, contexts and national and national character to coexist simultaneously. This had the effect of opening economic opportunities to both fighters and associated parties. For example, in 1878, two bare-knuckle novices, Duckworth and Young Holden, fought their first professional fight for £50 at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. Duckworth was local, from Bury, but had fought in London three times in glove competitions, and Holden, from Sheffield, had fought in his own neighbourhood for only small stakes. Yet these apparent unknowns topped the fight card and filled the assembly rooms, attracting attendance of around a 1,000 spectators. And some fighters' networks also expanded internationally, and these connections could be particularly lucrative. High-profile fighters like Jem Mace would return to Norfolk to train but, and fight throughout Britain and Ireland, but he also toured Australia, New Zealand and North America, famously beating his fellow Englishman Tom Allen near New Orleans in 1870 for a prize of $5,000 in the American Championship. In 1879, he made money hand over fist with his boxing exhibitions in Australia, allegedly giving the outlaw Ned Kelly a private show for £10. But there were dangers in fighting beyond one's home, and after Mace enjoyed several financially rewarding victories while resident in New York, uh, attempts were made on his life by Irish-American gangsters with ties to John Morrissey, a former prize fighter turned congressman and state senator. Less dramatically, in 1865, Thomas Kelly from Bradford and John Rook from Manchester received a financial punishment when summoned to the petty sessions in the tiny Cumbrian village at Hamlet of Hackthorpe for a breach of the peace resulting from the prize fight. The magistrates bound them over to appear at the Assizes at Appleby Jail, but both men asked for the case to be disposed of there and then. As Rook explained, it would be a great loss to me to have to attend the Assizes I can't travel all over the country, I have no money to carry me about. And Kelly made a similar plea, claiming he was a poor man and had a wife and family to support and no means to travel. Whilst the magistrates expressed their sympathies and declared that their backers were at fault and ought to have paid their expenses, they nevertheless required them to enter into their own recognisances of £40 each, with an additional bond from a third party of £20, with the promise never to fight again. However, it's naive to assume the men were acting in good faith. Rook was well known in the London ring and Kelly had fought in London and, um, and several times near Manchester. In addition, Rook had laid a side bet with Kelly for £100 on the result and at £200 the prize money was substantial and of course both men went on to fight again. Regarding fighters' earnings, major bouts could be rewarding enough to permit retirement from the ring and a few exceptional figures were extremely successful. Ex-fighters like John Gully, who became the MP for Pontefract 
between 1832 and 1837, Nat Langham, who ran the London fight scene, and heavyweight champion Tom King, a former stevedore, who made a fortune estimated at over £4 million in today's money. An article printed a few years before his death applauded his achievement but establishedly disparaged how he'd made his money, which was from acting as a racecourse bookmaker rather than fighting. King could arrive financially, if not socially. Now, at face value, prices do appear generous in comparison to working wages. Estimates are, of course, contentious, but the measuring worth project gives a nominal figure of £41 for an average annual wage in 1860 and £53 in 1870. Two or three fights a year may have matched that, but it's difficult to determine what the fighter's share would have been. As accounts in the non-sporting press suggest the compensation was low. Next slide, please. So this slide is a court transcript printed in an article, um, 1861, titled The Dupes of Prize Fighting, which reported on the case of two young men charged with fighting for five pounds a side. The magistrate, Reverend W. Myerhouse, elicited from them that the winner would have received no more than 10 shillings from the stakes and the loser nothing. And returning to the case of Kelly and Rook at the Hackthorpe Petty Sessions, under questioning, Kelly spoke frankly about what a losing fighter could expect from his backers. Of course, court reports appearing in the local press have issues of subjectivity, as do the defendant's statements. But both examples are the only record which gives a voice to these men and their words underline the dismal financial fate of a defeated fighter. Needless to say, most men never made any serious money from fighting. The likely outcome of a fighter's, following a fighter's exit from the ring were circumstances unchanged from those on entry. A journeyman like Frank Wilson was typical. In his youth, he'd been apprenticed as a gunmaker, but entered the ring at 17 in 1862, fighting for £20. And by the end of his career in 1881, he was willing to fight anyone of his age and weight for £25. His longest fight was three hours and 26 minutes, and the average length was one hour and 35 minutes, and over half of those were against heavier men. And he died on the 6th of January 1890, leaving a wife and four children unprovided for. But his willingness to risk and endure physical punishment suggests he, like many of his compatriots, considered fighting rewarding, at least when compared to working in a trade. Of course, there was considerable, a considerable degree of financial and physical precarity in prize fighting, underscoring the tension between risk and reward. And Kevin Young has likened capitalist attitudes towards high-risk industries like offshore oil drilling to professional sport. Suggesting higher profits, i.e. winning, necessitates certain costs, including compromised health and safety standards, or in other words, injury, disablement and human loss. Undoubtedly, fighting for a living was an insecure and dangerous occupation, and careers were cut short by, by severe injury or death in the ring. Dick Dacken and Augustus Dorgan were two such unfortunates. When Dacken fought Bob Blanford in 1867, he was thrown heavily in the 13th and final round shattering his right kneecap. He was taken to Guy's Hospital, where he remained for several months. As with most of the working class, there was little, if any, financial relief if a fighter was injured or unable to perform. Men like Dacham had little choice but to rely on the goodwill of the fighting fraternity. However, the sporting press was one source of support for fighters, and the post-fight report asked that Dacham's friends and any of those that had gained from his defeat give something to help his wife and child during his convalescence. 
However, he had to wait eight months to become a testimonial and does not appear to have fought again. Sadly, Dorgar fared worse and died because of his injuries sustained in his 1875 fight against Thomas Tubbs. At the coroner's inquest, the witness gave evidence that on seeing Dorgar's condition, he begged him to cease fighting, but he refused to do so. And his seconds urged him to continue even after he was unable to defend himself. Whether Dorgar and his second's motivation to fight on was driven by the all or nothing nature of the ring is unknown, but it likely contributed to his death. Balancing the risk of injury and the need to win to secure the prize was not only restricted to bare knuckle fights. And during a glove bout at Sadler's Wells in 1877, one boxer broke his right arm in the second round but continued to fight for over two hours, incredibly taking the lead in the 28 rounds that were fought until the police arrived and put an end to the farce. The financial imperative of winner-takes-all contests, coupled with the natural competitiveness of fighters, could lead to harmful recklessness. The likes of Dorgar, Dackham, sorry, likes of Blandford, Dackham, Dorgar and Tubbs were far enough down the prize ring pecking order that fighting alone could not sustain them financially. And they supplemented their income by competing in other sports or with legitimate employment. Blandford was a successful pedestrian and both Dorgar and Tubbs were Hackney carriage drivers. Next slide, please. However, this memoir of an Irish immigrant prize-fighting family shows for some men earning money from fighting was viewed as the best or only choice. This was compounded by the numerous and ever-present risks in the Victorian workplace. Fighters were as likely as anyone to suffer an industrial accident. In 1865, young Holden, who was employed in pig scolding, and to delay his fight with Jen Fox after being seriously burned at work following a boiler explosion. Because of this, secondary income streams, such as running a sporting public house, selling ephemera, or tickets on chartered transport to remote locations were important. The ambition of many fighters was to become a publican, and the role of pubs in sustaining the ring's commercial network cannot be underestimated. Publicans provided spaces which facilitated the commerce of the ring, Lodgings for fighters and their attendance while training, holding weigh-ins and state money, providing places and spaces to meet and agree on the fight contracts. Pubs could provide a regular income and an exit route from the ring for men with enough material or cultural capital. And although he lacked the temperament to be a landlord, Jem Mace noted the takings of a small sporting public house that he kept in the east end of London in 1861 and frequently exceeded £100 a night. And during the mid-1860s, while proprietor of the Strawberry Fields Pleasure Gardens in Liverpool, the takings were £300 a day, of which one-third was profit. But there were costs and risks for public and entrepreneurs. In the case of Parson v Hicken, tried at Wolverhampton County Court in 1866, gives an indication of the expenditure incurred in subsidising pre-fight training. Ebenezer Hicken, the self-proclaimed champion of the lightweights, was sued by John Parson, the proprietor of the Pied Ball Public House in Wolverhampton. He was attempting to recover his £22 and 8 shillings costs for training a pugilist and for money advanced. This included £12 for four weeks board for Hicken and his attendant, a loan of £8 and £2 8 shillings for handkerchiefs, which displayed Hicken's colours. Hicken's trainer was an additional expense and received half a guinea a week and his board and lodging. And Hicken was also making money on the side from merchandising by selling the handkerchiefs paid for by Parson for half a guinea each. 
However, Parson himself is purely a speculator and motivated by financial gain rather than enjoyment of the sport. Under cross-examination, he was forced to admit that although he financed fights, he was careful not to, as he put it, entangle himself with the meshes of the law. He never attended to watch. It was appropriate, therefore, that the judge ruled the case should be treated as a commercial rather than a civil matter. By the 1860s, selling travel tickets was a well-established practice, and win or lose, it ensured a financial return for the fighters. Both John Heenan and Tom Sayers made a tidy sum, estimated at £1,000 from their share of the fares for their 1860 championship fight. And ticketing also had an intentional secondary consequence, to exclude those with, sufficient, with insufficient financial means, or more pointedly, insufficient refinement. Social discrimination was welcomed by many of the class of men that could typically afford the fare. And for the train to the Joe Goss versus Jem Mace fight in 1866, first class tickets cost two guineas, or one pound, ten shillings and sixpence for second. However, segregated crowds travelling to remote locations limited the number who paid to watch the fights. A 30-carriage train of the type that ferried passengers to the 1860 championship fight carried an estimated maximum of 800 passengers, and the greed of promoters could be counterproductive. When a steamboat was chartered for a fight near Liverpool in 1864, the high price of the tariff stopped many from enjoying the intended day's excursion. Unfortunately, the short-sighted exploitation of spectators accompanied by dishonest and disruptive behaviour by fighters and their supporters was common. Accusations of sharp practice dogged the 1867 fight between Mace and Nedo Baldwin. When Mace was arrested en route to the fight, the press reported this was the third time that purchases of a three-guinea ticket to, which the prom- to, what, to, to witness the promised fight for the championship belt and £400 had been sold. It's unclear if this was a preconcerted move on behalf of Mace's partisans to fill their own pockets, or whether O'Baldwin's backers had lost faith in their man at the last moment and informed police of Mace's whereabouts. Regardless, any intended exclusivity was compromised when a crowd of three to four hundred men assembled at the station on the morning of the fight, whereupon a group of so-called East End bullies took advantage of the situation and began charging for entry. £3 for first class and £2 for second. And approximately 300 additional and unofficial tickets were sold to a crowd that embraced all classes of society. And sales continued even after the rumour of Mace's arrest had been confirmed. Behaviour like this demonstrated a thoughtless, disorganised and self-destructive approach to the pursuit of profit that led even the most sympathetic journalists to report severe damage to the reputation of the ring. As Bell's life noted in 1869, the state of violence, robbery and abuse continued its demoralising sway until nearly having cut their own throats. And these internal pressures were exacerbated by external forces and the authorities had, uh, authorities had clamped down on what had, been, what had previously been a mutually beneficial enterprise. Following the introduction of the Regulation of, Rail- of Railways Act in 1868, Transport companies became liable for fines of between 200 to 500 pounds for carrying prize fighters or other persons to places appointed for these brutal displays. The company's complicity with the ring ended and its revenue stream dried up. Importantly, prize money was deemed forfeit if a cross or a fixed a fix was judged to be the case, 
However, fight fixing was not a new problem. And as Brailsford noted, the early 19th century, sorry, as Brailsford noted in the early 19th century, the decline of honesty and order in prize fighting was laid bare by throwing fights. And writing in 1830, Pierce Egan had exhorted pugilists in their displays of the manly and national science of boxing to avoid a cross as he would a pestilence. In fact, the connection between corruption and increased commercialization was an on- and increased commercialization was an ongoing criticism levelled at the prize ring. And 30 years after Egan, Sporting Gazette offered its opinion in an article that ruminated on the wretched state of England's national sports. Although it credited boxing with introducing comparative humanity to fighting, it proclaimed the prize ring has sunk into decay and blackguardism, the root cause being money. Nevertheless, when it comes to fight fixing, manipulating odds, or the perceived influence of money on sport, it's inappropriate to view the behaviour of the fighters the prism of contemporary morals. As George Bernard Shaw said, it was not the fighting men, but the betting men that have brought discredit on the profession. The fighters, especially those that were not wealthy and without personal agency, would have been under considerable pressure to perform as instructed by their backers. It is not to absolve men like Mace or O'Baldwin, who may have profited from such deceits, but to acknowledge that the background of circumstances and customs would have played a significant part in informing most professional fighters' decisions. It was simply an understood part of the fight game. Next slide. So in conclusion, this paper has attempted to show that the 1860s and 1870s were a period of significant change for the prize ring, yet there were continuities. The location of fights had shifted and new contexts emerged from industrialised urban centres. Fighters were better connected, which created commercial opportunities, but London and the southeast of England retained its established financial influence. Prize fighting displayed a national character, but it was located across a patchwork of public houses, gymnasia, and pleasure gardens. Patronising patronizing fighters was embedded in elite sporting culture, however, the reliance on this source of funding had been undermined by a process of commercial democratisation within the sport. Gentlemen patrons were being replaced by entrepreneurs for whom profit maximisation was a primary concern. And the use and abuse of fighters for profit continued with scant regard for equity or safety. But commercialisation had its detractors, even if it was attacked from different perspectives. The increasing fusion of supply and demand and modernity was seen by prize-fighting stalwarts as a debasement of custom and character brought on by financial corruption. Well, the presence of money was the dividing line between those that wanted to end prize fighting, but to preserve the, value, the virtues of pugilism. There had always been a tension in prize fighting around professionalism. The fighters were remunerated, and it had never been an amateur sport. However, boxing exhibitions had now become semi-respectable entertainment, and new formations were suited to regulated contests, but they covertly retained the prizes and gambling of earlier times. Predictably, there was a reluctance as this period wore on to publicly record prize money, due to legalistic divisions between an amateur or professional fight, whereas presenting a valuable gift to a champion was a useful ambiguity. But more difficult than assessing the broad structural changes in prize fighting is quantifying an individual fighter's personal earning power, how that qualified their status and their motivations. Fighters could earn large sums from a range of sources, 
certainly when compared to an average working wage, but most did not. Earnings and opportunities, like the act of fighting, remained unpredictable and hazardous. Thank you for listening. So, I mean, they, yeah, they were all from the working class, so I don't think there would be any, I mean, you would occasionally see a reference um, to, a, to a novice or, or titles as a novice in, in, the, in the record, and that might be somebody that was not from the working class background, but inevitably they were all um, working class men, but that particular person, John Gully, so he, he made a lot of money in a similar way to Tom King. Um, mm-hmm. From, from racecourse bookmaking. Right. And then he bought a country pile, and along with the country pile, I think there must have been a rotten borough there. Okay. And then I think he became uh, the, the MP that yeah. way. So it was a sort of slightly roundabout route, but um, you know, lots of them made enormous sums of money. Yeah. So people like Jen May, who was quite well known, had a very long career, made for, you know, fortunes multiple times through his career, um, just wasn't very good at hanging on to it. But there were a few like, like Gully, like Langham, like King, that managed to make their money and exit the ring and, and, and keep it. And that was, that was kind of the difference between you know, a lot of them. And I said thinking there that um, you know, being a publican was, was an ambition. And that was kind of, that always seemed like the logical route as a way out of the ring, but quite often that didn't end up you know, in a happy, happy, um, happy way because temptations and drink can be quite strong. So it's a route to some financial stability, or maybe not if you lose it. But it's a it's a route to money. Is it is it is there a route um, to social respectability, or do, does does this kind of mm. um, sort of stench of having once been a prize fighter hang over people within respect respectable society? I think it, I think it did, but I think there was also there's a there was a bit of um, some young aristocratic men would like rubbing shoulders with you know, rougher elements and so they would appreciate hang, you know, hang, basically hanging out with, with prize fighters. Um, Nat Langham used to hire prize fighters out to take um, wealthy young men around, wow. around, uh, you know, around Soho and whatever. And that was they'd be partly bodyguard and partly this, 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 this idea of hanging hanging around with someone that was a bit cooler a bit, than you. Yeah, exactly. It was a bit like that. I think they were yeah. kind of rough. They were tough. Um, lots of these young men wanted, you know, they were interested in, in boxing. They did it as a, as a as good in an amateur way, I guess, for them as a sort of training. But these guys were kind of real deal. So it was, yeah. it was a certain element, a certain free song of danger and excitement from that. Got a question. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. We've got a question. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the 
question in the chat. Great. So Jody asks, or Jody says, great talk, thanks Ben. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what kind of sources you use to put together your graph and tables on slides five to seven and your process for pulling it all together. So it's kind of a stats. Okay, stats so, um, so, so they're, they're pretty much from digitized newspapers and I just went through um, the annual chronologies in, in, in Bell's life mainly and, and took them from that. So it was, it was quite sort of painstaking work building this database. In the database, I think I've got about just under 1,100 fights from this, from this period. Um, so yeah, a case of just building a, building a database, um, digitised newspapers, uh, kind of qualitative detail comes from there as well, but they, they essentially they were quite rudimentary. They just had name of the fighter, who they fought, prize money, number of rounds, um, time it took, where it, where it took place, and entered all of, entered all of that in. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's, um, digitised newspapers are really kind of, that was good because that was obviously during lockdown mm. as well. So it made, made actually doing some research possible. And do we consider this to be fairly um, kind of complete data? I, your... I think it's probably, it's, it's about as complete as it, as it could be. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other scattered resources, um, references in there. The other thing is it does, it does, it just stops 1872. Oh. And that's because at that point, there's an editorial change in, in, in sporting newspapers in, in general. So they still, they still report on price, on bare knuckle prize fights, but they don't report on them quite so openly. And they don't collect these annual chronologies, which is a bit disappointing because that was a nice easy way because you'd have one long list you could just yeah. type, you know, type them all in from, from that. Um, yeah, so the editorial change made it more difficult to, to, to trace fights beyond 1872. And is that editorial change, does that come about as a result of this kind of increasing um, sort of regulation around it and a sort of perhaps societal unease about it? Is that where that's come from? I think so, and I think because that, by that point the Queensbury rules um, were, had been published, they were in, they were in, in use, um, boxing in that form was becoming more acceptable. Um, you, you quite often see advertised things called ass assault at arms, where you'd have a variety of essentially combat sports being being displayed, um, and glove boxing would, would normally be in included. So you know, they'd, have, they'd have shows at Sam as well, as they had um, shows at the Albert Hall that uh, British and foreign royalty would attend, and they had a a benefit there for um, sold for orphaned children after the Zulu War, where they would, um, you know, where, um, and boxing was kind of part of the entertainment. So it was just it became part of part of an acceptable entertainment, and I think the the, the papers realised perhaps there was a, a bit of a change happening, but it never actually went away. Mm. It was always it was still going on. It just perhaps wasn't reported. Right, so by that point, you'd probably find more references in, in local newspapers to things, a bit like the, the one that was in there about the fight on Shap Fells, where it's reporting, oh, isn't this dreadful, you know, this thing took place. So you'd find that kind of reporting going on rather than the more um, positive reporting that happened prior to that point. Yeah, yeah. And then from a, from a methodological perspective, it becomes uh, more needle in the haystack. 
type stuff and try and find it, yeah. Yeah, it becomes a bit more, a bit more difficult. Okay, great. Um, any other questions? Um, uh, it's just, was there always, so there seem to be so many tensions in, in the whole sport and so many sort of conflicting forces and so, was, was there always that kind of, uh, you know, on the margin of what was, uh, uh, you know, of the law and, um, were fights always at risk of being, you know, broken up because they were seen as being outside the law? Yeah, very frequently. So about 25% of all the fights are recorded, reported some sort of disruption. So quite often you'd, you'd find a fight would get disrupted and they'd have to move. They'd often just move beyond the county border so the jurisdiction of the magistrates wouldn't carry across and so they could get, get away with, with fighting again. Um, but yeah, so a big proportion of them got disrupted. But, it, but prize fighting itself was never actually illegal. It was, there were other crimes that were, that were associated with it. And so in the beginning, it'd be, it would be crimes against property. But then again, sensibilities were changing slightly. And so then it became um, crimes against the body became more important. So uh, quite often it would be breach of the, of, of the peace but then eventually they're, they're, people would be charged for assault. And not only the fighters, so their, their seconds would get, would get charged and people watching it could get charged. So, um, I mean, I think at the 1860 championship fight between Heenan and Sayers, obviously it's quite a famous one that Professor Coles talked about a few weeks ago, I think uh, the Prime Minister was allegedly mm. in attendance, um, various other lords and... You know, military officers and you know big members of the establishment, so it was it it had this um, elite support. The elite support was 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 there more strongly in the early part of the century, and that gave it some protection. And people would allow fights to take place on on their private property, but that started to evaporate as well. And once that elite protection when then they became far more exposed um, and, and by this point by, 18, by the 1860s that had essentially gone then it came back in a way it came back round again but with the Queensbury rules obviously the Marquess of Queensbury was the sponsor of those but in a different formation although those rules did have a, a prize fighting so you know a, a, a version of the Queensbury rules that had no time limit and no, and no limit on number of rounds. So essentially, it was a, a prize fight in all but name, or better not a prize fight in all but name. Actually, that leads into something that I was interested in uh, with the, uh, the the breach of the peace issues, um, and it's the fighters themselves that are being taken to court. Um, I'm, I'm guessing they didn't set up the fights themselves. Or did they? Or were they promoters? No, they, would have, they, would, they generally would have had a promoter. Yeah. Um, so why weren't they taken to it, court? It may have been they just didn't get caught. Um, and the thing was, with, with, with policing back then, um, it, it was a bit more of an informal affair. So you might have had a local parish constable who's probably doing that because that's his turn that week. Um, and then you might have had a, a, a full-time, let's say, professional policemen that had been drafted in to try and stop it. So the, so the policing resources were quite slim. I mean, I think 
1860s, there were something like 160 or 70 police officers for the whole of Staffordshire. So, I mean, it was, you know, it's a big county with not a lot of resource. So it's quite likely they just identified the two fighters and that's the only people that they could, they could catch. I mean, you do see reports of when they have caught seconds or they have caught, um, caught members of the crowd and, and, and they've been prosecuted. So they're literally going in and... and Physically catching people. Yeah, and the crowds would, would, would resist. So there's a, I mean, a, a fight took place on the outskirts of Birmingham. Um, Frank Wilson, I mentioned in the, in the, in the paper, was in, involved in that. And um, there's a report of the, the police coming in there that says, you, you know, use, use their staves quite freely. And the crowd resisted and, and threw stones at them and attacked them with sticks. But there were only three or four um, policemen there for a crowd of probably about a thousand. So their normal tactic was to try and seize the, seize the ropes or cut the ropes because that way they couldn't recommence somewhere else. So they, they got the stakes and the ropes and the, the fight was essentially, um, essentially over. So they're being, they're being um, exploited again oh, yeah, by yeah. the promoters and they're just keeping a low profile and not getting into trouble. And yeah, com yeah, completely. I mean, there were, there were some, there were some that, had, you know, that made enough money and had enough um, capital um, with, you know, within, the, within the, the prize ring to sort of forge their own way. Someone like Jen Mace, who was you know, a, a big name, probably the biggest name. Um, but often... Yeah, they were just exploited. So again, Frank Frank Wilson entered the ring at seventeen. He was he was under the uh, tutelage, I suppose, of, of a promoter in Birmingham called Mac Hollinson. And Mac Hollinson would just find these young men and train them. They show some aptitude to boxing. They'd, they, 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 would, they would keep them. Maybe they'd keep them um, quiet, so no one knew no one knew much about them, and they'd put them out to fight. That advertise in the in the in the paper. Uh, essentially, I've got this. I, you know, I've got this um, guy at seven and a half stone. He'll fight anybody for twenty five pounds. He'll travel to this place and this place and this place. You know, so they would they would fix fights like that. And it it was it was exploitative, um, unless you were fortunate enough to somehow you know find find your own find your own kind of. Um, you know, gather enough resources, be that financial or, or kind of, um, uh, sort of cultural, I suppose. I guess that's why a lot of the fighters went into the, the pub owning business, and then they could do the same. Yeah, a lot of them would do. They would, I mean, uh, McKelvey in, in, in the paper, he was a former fighter and he, he set up uh, boxing competitions. And that was that was often the way they would, it was just a natural progression. Nat Langham had been a, a champion, champion boxer. Um, and then he came to London and set up um, the Cambridge Source Tavern, which was kind of the centre of that in, in, in London. And Jen Mace worked for him for a while as, as one of his sort of bouncers for hire, sort of bodyguards for hire. So you have these, these, these fight fixers dotted around. So Langham in London, Collinson in Birmingham. Brettel in Birmingham, they, you know, Brettel had been a, a fighter before as well. Um, and they would just form, they would have these networks and the networks would shift around these, these, these individuals and, and wherever they were, a network would, would spring up. Thank you. Okay, so 
do you get specific groups of spectators who are kind of, maybe there's no sense of this in the historical sources, but I'm just wondering whether um, there were kind of, you know, there were, but there would be, in the same way that you get kind of groups of people who follow a specific football team, would you get groups of people who would go, right, I'm just going to follow, I'm going to go and watch all of the fights that this particular fighter mm. is involved in, so that kind of travelling fan pack. Yeah, I think I think you probably would do within the sort of um, bounds of being able to move around at, at the time. But um, I mean, there was the, there was what's known as the fancy, which was, I guess, the sort of leisured gentleman that enjoyed all kinds of sport, um, normally centred around gambling, um, and they would have predominantly been London-based. But they would have been people all over the country with their own local networks that would have would have done that. Um, and ranging across society as well, so you would have had, you know, the very wealthy um, fight fans, but you would, you would have had um, people with very modest means. I mean, there was one example of a fight that took place in a place called Fiddler's Ferry, which is in between, it's near Warrington, in between Liverpool and Manchester. And um, someone walked from Manchester to go and watch this fight. But he didn't have enough money to pay the ferry to cross over the Mersey, so he tried to swim it, and he drowned. But I mean, but, but when, he's, when, they went to, when they went to interview his wife afterwards in the, in, the, in the newspaper, they said that he would frequently walk 30, 40 miles to go and watch a prize fight. And he came with a crowd of about 500. Wow. So there was, there was a lot of travelling support. I mean, you could imagine it would have been, they didn't really care who was, who was doing it, they'd just go watch whoever was fighting. But there's, Many references to, um, to you know, this particular fight as partisans, and they would have been pretty, um, you know, pretty uh, full on in their support of their of their favoured their favoured fighter, and they would watch them closely as well in terms of determining what odds would would be um, would be would be on, on on the fight. So they would watch the fighters in advance. You know, they would read. It was as much interest in reading about the physical condition of the fighters in advance as there is about the sports people today. Is there still, like in some of these places and some of the box, the fighters, is there still a sort of folklore around them? Because I'm thinking about Bendigo, because you know, I've been to see Bendigo's tomb in Nottingham, and he's, I think he's still quite a presence in you know, people in Nottingham. Mm. Knowing about a bit about the history. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think I think so. I mean, I think um, so. Sayers came from from Brighton. There's a, there's a plaque in in Brighton commemorating him. Um, I think there's a some sort of memorial memorial in Liverpool to to Jen May. So he wasn't um, well, he was from Norfolk, but um, he I think he died in Liverpool, and I think the local amateur boxing club. Uh, put put a put a memorial up. Uh, Sayers tomb, I think, is in maybe Archway. Highgate. Highgate. Yeah, yeah, Highgate Cemetery. Yeah. yeah. So you can go and visit that, and that was a that was a site of of of, of essentially pilgrimage for yeah. for fight fans. There's a statue of his dog. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Underneath it, the inscription says, "I'm Top Sayers' dog. Whose dog are you?" <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to go and find that. Yeah, it's worth going to. <laughs> yeah, so there is quite a lot of... I mean, in, the, in, a, in, in a village, um, which is about 10 minutes from where I live, 
there's a the grave of um, a Scottish champion who, who died in he died in a prize fight at um, 1834 something like that and so and you know and that was I mean some of it is is only locally known I mean, that was on that's on the sort of local history website so it may not be that that broad that broadly and people were broadly aware of it but you know, for the for the bigger names there is there is, you know it does still carry some weight and I think culturally if you watch um, if you watch things like Peaky Blinders or or, mm. or Sherlock Holmes the movie with Robert Downey Jr they they they've got yeah. bare knuckle boxing in that and it's and it's there is it's sort of um, quite you cultural ubiquitous I think and you know lots of the phrases that we come up to scratch and that sort of thing you know that comes from three, anyone three. done a, a topographical study of um, fight venues well I've, I've done a little bit of that in, in my yeah. geographical chapter um, and there, there were some obviously the main consideration for them was to have it close enough that they could get to it but not so close that the police or the magistrates could find it, so there, that was the the main criteria. But then there are the reports of um, you know, them trying to find the right piece of ground, and saying, "Well, this place is really good because it's got a, a wall down one side and it's trees down the other, and it gives a good you know good sort of shielding." So that they they were very knowledgeable about about where they couldn't couldn't go, and because so often they had to up sticks and and, and move. I mean, the, this particular fight that Frank Wilson was involved in, um, it was one of his, I think it was one of his second fight, it had to move five times before they finally came to the, to, to, it came to the final location and that got disrupted and they had to fight again, I think a sixth time on the following day. So they had to have all of these um, backup places wow. re- ready. Um, so yeah, so part of it was kind of how, you know, how, how, how close can we push it to, to getting caught as opposed to being far enough away where it won't get um, won't get disturbed, mm-hmm. and so the importance then was controlling information. The publicans were key for that. They controlled information of where the fights were going to take place. You'd, you'd get a ticket just saying, it was essentially mystery tour, um, but it would leak out, and obviously, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that secure. Hence, pe- people hundreds of people would turn up on the morning of a fight trying to get on the train. To these so-called exclusive locations. Any other questions? Any questions in the room? No. Just a thank you from Simon Inglis to say it was really interesting. Ah, right. Well, I've read um, some of Simon's stuff yeah. on, on sporting, uh, yeah, sporting locations, and that's that's really, really good. Okay, thanks.